Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of the hosts of the channel, Shatran Mall. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Ramachandra Guha about his new book, Rebels Against the Raj, Western Fighters for India's Freedom, which was published by Knopf and HarperCollins in 2022. Dr. Guha is a renowned Indian author, historian, and public intellectual based in Bangalore. He has written numerous well-received and best-selling books on modern Indian history, including India After Gandhi on India's post-independence history, and biographies of Mohandas Gandhi in two volumes, Gandhi Before India and Gandhi The Years That Changed the World, 1914 to 1948. He has also written and researched in such diverse fields as environmental history and cricket history. So thank you for joining the podcast today, Dr. Guha. It is a great privilege to speak with you today. Our first question is always biographical, so I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up and how did you become a historian? Thank you, Shatranjay. Good to be here. I uh, am, my roots are originally from uh, South India. My great-grandparents moved from the Tamil country to Bangalore, uh, where my father himself uh, lived and studied. But I grew up in Dehradun, where my father joined the Forest Research Institute. Incidentally, he fell in love with my mother, who was the daughter of a scientist at the FRI. Uh, So uh, he moved there essentially to uh, pursue his courtship of um, uh, the the woman he loved, uh, and uh, after he married her, he, uh, they stayed on in the Forces Institute, a wonderful, gorgeous, wooded campus of about 2,000 acres at the foothill of the Himalaya, with the Shivaliks to the south and the great mountains to the north. In fact, I'm speaking to you on a computer, which has as its screensaver and its backdrop uh, the fabulous main building of the FRI, which is a little known jewel of Indo-British architecture. So I grew up in almost idyllic surroundings, natural surroundings. I played a lot of sport. Uh, I suffered from asthma, which was kind of the only downside of my childhood. And uh, my boyhood, interestingly, was in sport and cricket. I did read a bit. And I became a historian completely by accident much later uh, uh, through meeting people who oriented me away from economics, which is what I was graduating in, towards sociology and eventually to history. But till... The age of 22, I had no scholarly or literary interest at all, in a professional sense. I read books, but I never thought I'd become a writer or a scholar. Thank you for sharing that. I can imagine that growing up in such idyllic surroundings probably got you interested in the environment and like your love for cricket also probably got you interested in environmental, in cricket history. 
So, so thank you for sharing that. Um, so I'd now like to turn to talking about your new book, uh, Rebels Against the Raj. Um, so your book is a deeply fascinating and engaging account of seven individuals from the West. So four Britons, two Americans and one Irish Irish woman who settled in India, contributed to its public sphere and became part of the Indian social fabric. So could you tell us how you came to write this book and what you see as the major contributions of this book? So, Satyajit, I mean, this should, uh, uh, to answer that question, I would, it, it, it goes back to how I became a scholar and a historian. So, as I said, I was graduating in economics and I had no interest in the subject and the subject had even less interest in me, uh, uh, frankly speaking. And I was doing some field, economic field research in Odisha, in eastern India. And there was a veterinary doctor there who asked me whether I'd heard of Vary, ever heard of Varian Elvin, and I hadn't. And he said, go read his books. Elwin was a British-born anthropologist who became the leading uh, ethnographer of India's tribal people and mm-hmm. spent some of his time in the district of Koraput in Orissa where I was doing my economics fieldwork. And I was charmed by his prose, his narrative, the excitement of his life. And I thought, hey, this is about real human beings. It's not about abstract statistics or equations. Maybe I should become an anthropologist. And so I went on to do a PhD in, in, in sociology and anthropology and then moved into history, but Elwin transformed my life. And many years later, I wrote a biography of Ariel Elwin and this journey of this remarkable Oxford scholar who becomes an Indian and the leading scholar as well as advocate of India's tribal people, forgotten, vulnerable, exploited, uh, dispossessed tribal people. And I always wanted to uh, write a companion volume to that biography a collective history of eight or ten such individuals. And I all, of course, then I got involved in writing India After Gandhi, which you talk about, and my, I spent a decade uh, working on Mahatma Gandhi. But at the back of my mind was always this unfinished project on rebels against the Raj. And in whichever archive I was in, I would gather material on these kind of people I was encountering who abandoned their original race, religion, and nationality uh, to become Indians. And I then eventually decided that to focus the book, to give it a kind of um, sharper analytical edge, I had to introduce a boundary condition, which was that every one of the people included in my book had either to be arrested or deported during Mm -hmm. British rule. You know, I didn't want it to be a general history of Indo-Western encounters, which included clergymen, doctors, lawyers, school teachers, do-gooders. I wanted... Uh, to really focus on uh, these radicals who uh, moved away, who uh, kind of defied um, the imperial background in which they had been raised and the white supremacist background uh, that, that they came from to identify with the freedom struggle. And uh, the seven people I, I talk about were all most interesting and unusual in their own right. And of course, I was able to fortunately gather a fair amount of primary material on each one of them. So. Essentially, this book has its distant origins in uh, a veterinary doctor in Orissa telling me in the year 1978 that I must see it very relevant. It's now more than 40 years later. Uh, 20 years later, my biography of Elvin appeared. It appeared in 1999. It was published in America by the University of California Press. And two decades, a further two decades after that, has come this kind of standalone sequel, which is a group portrait rather than a book about a single individual. Thank you for sharing uh, that. Uh, actually, you already answered what was going to be one of my next questions about how you came to choose the, these individuals. Um, but um, 
uh, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really happy that you came about to write this book. And now having read this book, I'm very curious to read your book on Verrier Elwin, since my interest about him was also piqued by um, reading this book. Um, so uh, but before delving more deeply into the, uh, into the individuals of the book, I just had another question um, about your research for the book. Um, so where did yeah. you do your research um, and what sorts of sources and archives did you use? So, uh, Satyanjaya, you know, I'm now in my 60s, so I have four decades of archival research behind me, which means I have a fair amount of experience in looking for materials, uh, looking at pla- into places, finding places where mat- materials relevant to my research might be found. So quite a lot of the research was done in the British Library and the Nehru Memorial Museum and Library, which are the two mm-hmm. major repositories of uh, uh, papers on modern Indian history. Uh, but a fair amount was done in private archives. I was extremely fortunate that uh, in the case of uh, at least four of the seven characters in my book, uh, I was able to locate, get access to material in private hands that had never been seen before, After letters that had not been seen after they'd been written. For example, one of the characters in my book uh, is an Englishman called Philip Spratt who comes out to India as a communist and fall in, in love with a Tamil girl and then is arrested by the British because of his communist views and, uh, you know, spends the next long period in jail, comes out of jail, then moves uh, steadily rightward and becomes uh, a fierce proponent of the free market economy after Indian independence. And his love letters to his wife, to his girlfriend who became his wife, uh, were in the possession of his descendants and they very freely gave me access and said, do what you want with them. Uh, another of the characters in the book is a American called R.R. Ketan, who came as a missionary to South India, left the church, joined the Gandhian movement. And I found his papers in a, in a, a hospital he had found in a small mm-hmm. town called Odan Chatram, which is between the two larger cities of Coimbatore and Madurai, well-known in Tamil Nadu. Odan Chatram is a small town where one of Ketan's disciples started a hospital for the poor and that's why Kaitan himself spent his last days and actually in the room in which he died I found his papers in, a, in the cupboard and uh, the trustees of the hospital again very generously said we are sure you'll make good use of these Dr. Guha take it home take this stuff home with you so uh, unlike shall we say for my biography of Gandhi which was based in, of course in research in public archives all over the world but it, I didn't really have uh, in the case of Gandhi you wouldn't have uh, Uh, stuff in private hands. Here I was able to get a lot of material which uh, generous descendants or legatees of my seven seven subjects uh, gave to me with full trust. You know, maybe because they knew I had written books before. Maybe they, uh, you know, were convinced by the, uh, my enthusiasm and my excitement and the way I spoke about these people. But I was very, very fortunate in gathering a lot of material in private hands rather than stuff merely in public archives, which is also very useful. Finally, I'll say one last thing, Chaturnjaya, uh, for listeners of this podcast, and particularly historians. This book also, like some of my previous books, relies a lot on old newspaper records. And old newspaper records are incredibly helpful but massively underused resource in the writing of the history of colonial and post-colonial India. So, you know, here you'll find not only material from uh, newspapers like the Hindustan Times, the Hindu, the Bombay Chronicle, but lesser known weeklies 
such as um, Swarajya, which was published out of South India, Mice India, which was published out of, uh, out of Bangalore, the theosophical magazines that Annie Besant ran, uh, Gandhian weeklies such as uh, the Harijan and Young India. So periodical literature, fugitive periodical literature and old newspaper uh, microfilms also provided me a lot of uh, fresh new material for my book. Thank you. Uh, that, that should be food for thought for anybody who's trying to write like histories of modern India to sort of consult like a wide range of sources, including private archives and newspapers um, and so on. So I would now like to uh, sequentially ask you about the seven individuals you cover in the book. Uh, moving in a chronological order, the earliest uh, figure you discuss is the relatively well-known Irish woman, Annie Besant, who came to devote her life to what she saw as India's political and spiritual revival. So for those of our listeners who are not familiar with her, could you tell us a little bit about Annie Besant? How did she land up in India and what were her co contributions to social and political life in India? So Annie Besant uh, uh, was the only, was the first chronology, the first character in my book. She comes uh, first in 1893. But she also is the only one of the seven subjects who comes in middle age. She comes in her 40s after a very active and indeed controversial career as a socialist and suffragette and polemicist uh, in England. Uh, and then, late, you know, then she discovers theosophy while in England and comes to India to spread its message because theosophy was a kind of a eclectic creed which drew a lot on Eastern spiritual traditions. So she comes in 1893, first on a religious mission, then she gets involved in women's education, and slowly she throws herself into the emerging Indian freedom struggle, partly inspired by what is happening in, native, in her native Ireland. So when the Home Rule movement starts in Ireland, Annie Besant starts a Home Rule League in India and uh, organizes pub public protests, uh, demanding home rule or dominion status for Indians and, of course, uh, attracts a great deal of attention because of her oratory, her, 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 her well-known background as an agitator in England and so on. And then she's interned, which sparks a greater controversy. And, of course, as a result of that controversy, uh, she becomes president of the Indian National Congress, the first woman uh, to occupy that post. And then uh, her later life is somewhat, uh, if not tragic, saddening and depressing because Gandhi has by this time returned from South Africa. He's taken over the leadership of the Indian National Movement and Besant is sidelined, partly because she's much older than Gandhi. She's not as charismatic in Gandhi and above all because she only speaks in English. Whereas Gandhi uses the vernacular, Hindi, Gujarati and other Indian languages to reach out to a much wider uh, cross-section of Indian people uh, in his movement than Besant could ever do. So it's just, this is the story of Besant, really. Uh, but in her heyday, she was a really inspirational and charismatic figure. Thank you. Yeah, she's a very interesting and unique uh, figure uh, in many respects, um, including, as you were describing, her political life um, in India. And I was really surprised to discover that she was um, like an atheist or something like in Victorian England, where such views were sort of looked down upon. Um, and then how she ends up from converting from atheism to theosophy. Like that was also a very interesting, um, you know, journey. Right. 
you, you next turn your attention to the journalist and newspaper editor Benjamin Horneman, um, the namesake of the Horneman Circle in Bombay. Um, so how did Horneman come to India and what was his role in colonial India's burgeoning anti-colonial movement in the early 20th century? Well, Horneman is one of my favorite people in this book, partly because I am a columnist myself. And I now operate in the India of 2022 under conditions of increasing restrictions on the freedom of the press and harassment of independent journalists, uh, some of which I've personally experienced too, but this is not the place to go into that. So Horniman comes to India to work in the Statesman, which is a British paper run out of Calcutta. And in 1913, a group of Indian liberals uh, in Bombay uh, want to start an alternative to the establishment-oriented and pro-colonial times of India. And they launch a newspaper called the Bombay Chronicle. Horniman is actually the second choice to be editor. The first choice refuses. And Horniman makes the Bombay Chronicle the vehicle of the progressive nationalists of Bombay. Uh, he also has a deeply developed social conscience. Bombay is the center of the textile workers' industry. So he takes up the workers' cause. He's very close to Gandhi. When Gandhi launches his first All India campaign, the Rural Satyagraha, the Bombay Chronicle supports it. Uh, then, of course, uh, shortly after the Rural Satyagraha, there's the Jallianwala Bagh massacre, the killing of 400 odd uh, peaceful protesters in Amritsar uh, by British troops. And Horniman carries the first reports on that tragedy, as a result of which he is deported by the British and spends seven years in exile in London, trying very hard to come back. And I, he comes back to a thrilling process of sub- subterfuge and deceit, which I describe in my book. Now, at that, he resumes his career as a campaigning journalist for the next two decades and mentors many young Indians who go on to become important, recognized and influential editors in their own right. He starts the first trade union of working journalists. He's often in court defending the freedom of the press, defending himself and his newspaper against allegations of libel and, uh, and so on and so forth. He's also gay, which is a which is uh, uh, which is a very interesting aspect of his life because uh, colonial India was deeply prejudiced against homosexuality, and uh, to be British and gay, uh, and the, British, to be anti-British, to be white anti-British and gay in the Haredi garage was a kind of a typical form of radicalism, and uh, so that's really his story. And he's honoured by this circle in Bombay, very beautiful circle in South Bombay near the Asiatic Society. Uh, by the way, there's also a Besant Road in Bombay. So Bombay, most of the roads and buildings have Indian names, indeed mostly Maharashtrian names. But Horniman and Besant still remain as embodying a major road in central Bombay and uh, uh, this lovely shaded park in southern Bombay, uh, which is named after Horniman. The road through Warli uh, is named after Ali Besant. So that's uh, Horniman. His story is compelling, but also compellingly relevant because, as you know, Shatunjaya, uh, India currently ranks, I think, 141st uh, on the World Freedom Index. It may be 143rd by the time I, we complete the show. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Like Benjamin Horneman, both as like a gay man whose um, uh, who's, uh, the, the records of his, um, you know, his romantic life are probably not available anymore. But like as a gay man and as a newspaper editor, he's sort of a very, um, as you said, like compelling and noteworthy figure uh, amongst the uh, figures you cover in this book. And it, it, it was really fascinating to read about him and his life story in, in the book. 
Um, so you next covered the American Quaker Samuel Stokes, who settled in the him- hills near Shimla in present-day Himachal Pradesh. Uh, most of our audience is probably unfamiliar with Stokes. So could you tell us a little bit about him? Who was he and what were his social, political and economic contributions to his local community in the Himalayas and to India more broadly? Yeah. So uh, the way this book works is I introduce each of these seven characters as they come chronologically and then later on I interweave their lives. So uh, it's not, uh, you know, then I kind of uh, return to Besant and then go on to someone else and, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's that kind, it's a kind of, it's not seven discrete sections on seven individuals, but in their first introduction in the book is chronological. So Stokes is um, from uh, Philadelphia, which is uh, uh, near Philadelphia, the state of Pennsylvania, American state of Pennsylvania, of course, very important in Quaker history. <coughs> Born in a family of Quakers, <coughs> comes as a Quaker missionary to India, <coughs> becomes involved in social work in the Shimla Hills, marries a local girl, falls in love, marries a local girl, leaves the church, John Gandhi's non-cooperation movement spends about a year in jail, uh, actively engages with Gandhi, then has disagreements with Gandhi on the question of hand spinning, which he feels should not be mandatory for members of the Congress Party. Uh, and, but while immersing himself in the lives of his wife's people, he recognizes that horticulture or the cultivation of fruit would provide a route towards commercial and social emancipation for the hill peasantry. So he brings apples back from his native Pennsylvania and experiments with them in what is now the state of Himachal Pradesh, the hills around the imperial summer capital Shimla, and lays the foundations of what is now a thriving multi-billion dollar industry. He also uh, becomes a Hindu. You know, he converts from Christianity uh, to identify more fully with his wife's people. And, uh, uh, you know, his actually his... Many of his descendants are still around in the Shimla area. His son-in-law, one of his sons-in-law was a chief minister of the state of Himachal Pradesh. Other of his descendants have been professors, designers, photographers, social activists. Uh, so his legacy, not just his economic legacy in terms of the horticultural industry, but his kind of familial legacy in terms of public spirited social and cultural work continues in Northern India. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so actually, my, my mother grew up near Shimla, um, and my grandmother had an opportunity to meet um, Vidya Stokes, uh, the yes. politician, many years ago. Um, he was so, also his daughter-in-law. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. so that, that was like really interesting for me to sort of read up about the backstory of how of, of this family. So that was really very fascinating. So another figure you discuss is a concert pianist named uh, Madeline Slade, who became the adopted daughter of Mahatma Gandhi, uh, Meera Bain. Um, so how did uh, Meera Bain, uh, how did Madeline Slade become Meera Bain, and how did Madeline Slade become interested in India? <laughs> so uh, uh, you know, Meera Bain or Madeline Slade, to give her, her original name, is probably among the seven people uh, the best known or the least unknown. Today, I mean, Annie Besant, of course, was a considerable figure in her own day, but she's been largely forgotten in Ireland, England, and even to some extent in India. But Meera Bain is known because of the central role she plays in the Gandhi story as Gandhi's adopted daughter, and also because she figures in Richard Attenborough's widely viewed film on Gandhi, which was um, released in 1982. So she is the daughter of a British admiral, 
uh, whose uh, first love is music and wants to become a concert pianist. She's born in 1892. And she's quite good at the piano, but not good enough to break into the concert circuit. Uh, but she really adores Beethoven. And of course, uh, ador- uh, adoration of German composers after immediately after the First World War was not really uh, the most likely route to success in the concert circuit in the UK. So that may have been one reason why she couldn't become a successful concert pianist. But her admiration for Beethoven takes her to the French writer Romain Rolla, who had written a biography of Beethoven. So she goes to meet him in his home near the French-Swiss border. And uh, Romain tells her that his own interests have turned from Beethoven to Gandhi, on whom he's writing a book. And Mila Bennett, or Madeleine, as she then was, had never heard of Gandhi. So when Rolla's book on Gandhi comes out, she buys it, reads it in French, is enchanted by this man and decides to devote her life to him writes a letter to Gandhi asking that she be allowed to join him. Gandhi tells her to prepare uh, through a year of uh, ascetic, abstemious behavior, becoming vegetarian, spinning cloth, uh, living simply and so on, which she does. Then she comes out to India in 1925, joins Gandhi's inner circle, lives in his ashram, is an adopted daughter, spent several terms in prison as a result of her participation in the freedom struggle. In between is sent uh, to campaign for British freedom, uh, for a big part of Indian freedom from British rule in England and North America. She also meets, she has a very important meeting with the First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt in the White House. Uh, and after independence stays on, uh, uh, working in the Himalaya, where she becomes a pioneering environmentalist, running a rural settlement, promoting uh, the integration of agriculture, animal husbandry and forestry. And uh, in 1959, after... 30-odd years in India, the call of Beethoven returns to her and she decides to leave India and go back to Europe where she makes a home near the Vienna woods, so beloved of Beethoven. Uh, is still interested in Gandhi, writes about Gandhi, uh, inspires the making of Attenborough's film and writes a monograph on Beethoven that is published after death. So again, a very uh, interesting, moving, multifaceted life of engagement with India and with Gandhi. Thank you. That is a very unique uh, life journey to move from being an con- aspiring concert pianist to becoming like a, a disciple of uh, Gandhi on the other side of the world from in a context that's very different from what you might have, or what she must have grown up in. Um, so the next individual you discuss is Philip Spratt, uh, who, you, who you mentioned briefly before, uh, who arrived in India as a con- as a convinced communist revolutionary on behalf of the Communist Party of Great Britain. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about him and his life and career in India? How did living in India lead him to change his ideas and convictions? So Spratt uh, was educated in Cambridge, Cambridge University. He came from a middle class, non-conformist family. And in Cambridge in the early 20s, he became a communist as many young undergraduates uh, be, uh, taking the path, uh, a path followed by many other young undergraduates in Cambridge at that time. And the party sends him out to India to help promote revolution, uh, particularly among the working classes in Bombay uh, and in other centers of industrial uh, uh, unrest such as Calcutta and Kanpur. So he travels around. In the, he also comes to Madras where he meets the granddaughter of a famous Tamil communist called Singaravelu Chetiar, whose grandniece, actually, adopted granddaughter, was called Sita, and falls in love with her. She's a 15-year-old girl. He's charmed by her. And then he carries on with his revolutionary activism. Activism is arrested. 
and jailed for a long time as the primary accused in what's called a merit conspiracy case, a case that is uh, well known to historians of colonial India. And in jail, he, uh, two things happen in the several years he spent in jail. He starts reading Gandhi and moves away from his uh, attachment to communism. And at the same time, uh, has a long exchange of letters with Sita, deepening his love for her and for India. Unfortunately, we have only his letters to Philip's letters to Sita. Sita's letters to Philip would have been in the jail and would have been confiscated or burnt. But this one side of the correspondence is rich and moving and insightful enough. So he eventually comes out of jail in the mid-30s. Um, by this time, he's become a socialist, an anti-communist socialist. He's close to the other recovering revolutionary, M.N. Roy, who had been once close to Lenin, but then mm -hmm. had become disgusted with what Stalin, Stalin's brutality and had moved away from communism altogether. Uh, Pratt and Sita get married. They settle in the town which I'm speaking to you from, Bangalore. They raise a family of four children. He becomes a journalist uh, with a small weekly called Mice India, uh, makes a name as a uh, pugnacious commentator on current affairs. He also becomes a student of the Hindu personality using the psychoanalytic insights of uh, Freud and Jung to uh, uh, understand how Hindu families uh, construct themselves and the conflicts uh, that they that lie within uh, the Hindu family system uh, and moves further to the right and becomes a passionate advocate of the free market in India. He becomes part of the Indian Council for Cultural Freedom, which is an anti-colonial, anti-communist outfit promoted by the Americans, actually secretly funded by the CIA, as was later later discovered, and is completely Indian by the end, you know, with his four children, uh, born of an Indian wife, uh, uh, and, you know, a well-known, albeit controversial Indian journalist. Uh, and he's always fascinated me because I discovered him early in my life. And because the weekly that he edited for many years, Mice India, was located in, in the street behind where I'm speaking to you, in central Bangalore. Uh, Spratt also frequented a much-loved bookshop in Bangalore called Select Bookshop, which I have myself patronized for 40 years and counting. So I have a special attachment to Spratt for many reasons. But I think um, the complex and variable trajectory of his life merits inclusion in a book anyway. And in some ways, with Horniman, he probably is the most uh, you know, uh, colorful character in the book. Thank you. That is a really fascinating uh, life that he lived. And he, he seems to have lived a very noteworthy life, moving in so many different circles and having this uh, trajectory. And it's also interesting to think about individuals like him who sort of, you know, engaged in political conversion, like move from left to right. right. Um, that, that, that That's a very interesting uh, topic as well, uh, because there were many other such figures in, in India. I'm, I'm thinking of someone like Meenu Masani, for example. That's right. Absolutely, yeah. Or more recently, Arun Shori, the journalist, also who kind of moved from left to right, but there have been others too, yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, so the last two individuals you discuss in the book, um, at least to me, were the least known figures that you cover. Um, so for our audience who may be unfamiliar, can you tell us a little bit about these two individuals? It is Richard Keithan and uh, Catherine Hillman. Um, who were they and how did their lives unfold in India? So, uh, R.R. Ketan was a, uh, who I've already talked about briefly because I talked about how I got his papers in, in the hospital in which he spent his last days and which he helped found, uh, was an Englishman from uh, Abikman, an American from the mid Midwest, 
who came as a missionary to South India, to Madurai, uh, and was disgusted by the luxurious lifestyles that white Christian missionaries led in India. You know, they were really colonialist, colonial sahibs. They lived in large bungalows. Uh, they had a whole retinue of servants. And they didn't really come to serve, but to lord over their Indian converts. Uh, so uh, this is about the time that Gandhi is launching his freedom struggle. Uh, Kaitan meets Gandhi, meets the great poet of the Indian Renaissance, Tagore, starts wearing homespun cloth, is expelled by his church and sent back to America, uh, where he marries a doctor called Mildred, has a child, and then comes back to India in 1934, uh, outside the ambit of the church. Again, he moves uh, some years later to Bangalore. He also has a connection with the town, my hometown, Bangalore, the town I live in now, Bangalore, where he works with uh, labor unions and with Dalits, or people from the formerly untouchable caste, and mentoring young activists uh, to take to a life of social service. In 1944, <coughs> because of his support for the Gandhian movement, he's deported again, this time with his children, wife and children. Uh, and he goes back again to uh, the Midwest, to Indiana, and after India becomes independent, comes back because he's so committed to this country. So Honeyman was deported once, Shatranjaya. Uh, Kaitan was actually deported twice, and each mm -hmm. time he came back. Uh, and uh, then after his second and final return to India, uh, Kaitan is instrumental in setting up a rural university in Gandhi's name near Madurai. It's called the Gandhi Gram Rural Institute. And it's still very active. It has um, uh, trained tens of thousands of Gandhian social workers and educationists and rural development specialists. And he really actually designs the curriculum for that place. And then after a few years in Gandhi Gram, starts a rural settlement of his own closer to the hills of uh, the Animala Hills. Uh, and I think his greatest contribution was mentoring young activists. Mm -hmm. So last year, uh, actually, earlier this year, one of the people he mentored, he, uh, I mean, he, among the people he mentored were a couple called Shankara Lingam and Krishnamal Jagannathan. And he supervised the inter-caste marriage between a Dalit and an upper caste. And they worked with him, were trained by him, and went on to become two of the leading social workers in Tamil Nadu, particularly known for their work on land redistribution and rural renewal. Shankara Lingam, the husband, died some years ago. Krishna Mal is still alive. At the age of 95, earlier this year, she was awarded the Padma Bhushan, which is the Republic of India's third highest civilian honor. <laughs> and I've spoken to her, uh, and she recalls her death to Kaitan, and she actually uh, uh, is, has read my book and her appreciation from this remarkable 95-year-old social activist mentored by Kaitan has probably meant more to me than all the positive reviews I've got of the book. So, Kaitan's real um, legacy was his mentoring of generations of social activists who have continued his work, including in the hospital in which he died, in Odan Chatram in uh, southern Tamil Nadu, which serves an area uh, where they are very still, even now, high-quality medical facilities do not exist. And the doctors and nurses are absolutely committed, professional, capable, and selfless, as I found on my visit there. So that is Kaitan. And the last person, and I'll end with her, uh, is uh, an English woman 
originally called Catherine Mary Heilman, who was a friend of Catherine's as it happened, though she worked in the other end of the subcontinent uh, in the Uttarakhand Himalaya. She was English, uh, was raised in London and met Indian students who, had, who were active in the Gandhian movement and decided to come to India. She first came to Udaipur in Rajasthan to join a school, a pioneering rural school, but found uh, uh, the heat of the desert too much to take, went to Gandhi, who then advised her to go to the Himalaya, and where she uh, eventually set up the first girls' school in one of the most backward and patriarchal parts of India, the Kumau Himalaya. A school that still exists, it's called, it was named after Gandhi's wife, Kasturba, and it mentored generations of social activists, including some of the major leaders of the celebrated environmental movement, the Chipko Andolan. And uh, Sarla herself was a pioneering environmentalist who wrote some very important books in English and in Hindi on uh, the challenges of a safe and uh, habitable, how to construct a safe and habitable uh, world, natural world for humans to live in. So she's the last person uh, chronologically who comes. Uh, and the book spans almost a century because Annie Besson comes in 1893. And Sarla Ben, which is the Indian name that Catherine took, dies in 1982. And Ketan, the American radical, dies even later in 1984. So through these seven lives, you get a kind of uh, uh, understanding into, uh, or you get a kind of perspective on, apart from the distinctiveness uh, of their own lives and what they did, I think my book is also, I hope, um, a window into uh, colonial and post-colonial history, social, mm -hmm. economic, cultural, political, and environmental transformations in India over a hundred-year period. Thank you so much. Um, uh, so actually, um, sort of, uh, you've already touched uh, on what was going to be my next question, um, but maybe you could just say a few words about it. Um, so four of the individuals you cover in the book were alive, as you mentioned, into the 1970s and 1980s, many years after India's independence. So could you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, uh, their lives and careers after independence? So uh, Besant is the earliest to die in the early 30s. Stokes dies in 1946. Honeyman, the journalist, dies in his erupted city, Bombay, in 1948, uh, shortly after independence. But Meera Ben, originally Madeleine Slade, the concert pianist who became Gandhi's adopted daughter, is active in environmental work in the Himalaya through the 50s. Uh, her, her compatriot, Catherine Heinemann, who takes the name Sarla Devi, is active in environmental and social and educational work in the Himalaya in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. Spratt, whom we talked about, is an important and influential and controversial journalist. Uh, he's what we would today call a public intellectual, though that term had not really, was not in common currency then, through the 50s and the 60s. And then finally, you have Ketan, who I talked about his work in mentoring uh, rural social activists in southern India, uh, right through the 50s, 60s, 70s, and up to his death in 1984. So all four made major contributions to social and public and indeed literary life because they all left a record behind of, their, of what they did in their writings too, to our country. And my book tries to do uh, some justice to all these different aspects of their legacy. And incidentally, I should say in this connection, Satunjay, that the book is dedicated to the Belgian-born Indian economist Jean Dress, mm -hmm. uh, who uh, 
is a foreign born like all all the others in my book was born and raised abroad made india his home and has made fundamental contributions to public policy and intellectual debate in our country and is someone i'm proud to call a uh, a friend and a compatriot thank you uh, yes uh, i think many of these uh, figures are unfortunately have been like, like sort of you know like um sidelined in in our memory because we sort of focus um so much on certain other figures um so um so i'm 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 really thankful to you for having written this book to sort of recover the memory of all of these um fascinating individuals who contributed um to india um so before we end uh, my final question about um uh, about these individuals is what do you see as the legacy of these seven rebels um uh, against british colonial rule in today's india i think you've already covered a lot of this uh, question but if you have any final thoughts about this yeah, i think uh, you see uh, obviously as i said these are seven unique distinctive individual lives and i hope you know each one of them attracts some attention but the broader message chatunje is that it's an argument against xenophobia against the idea that every culture is self a country self contained self reliant and has all the resources within itself to solve and address its own problems and this kind of uh, ethic of self reliance goes with a suspicion dislike and sometimes hatred outright hatred of what comes from outside your culture or your country and this kind of paranoid xenophobia to use a strong phrase uh is uh, quite ubiquitous in india today but also in america uh, with trump and the supremacists with in england with the brexiteers in china with xi jinping and his uh, kind of uh, uh, idea that china is destined to rule the world with vladimir putin and his revanchist ideology which is wrecking now wrecking havoc across many parts of europe and so on so this is an argument against xenophobia their lives are a morality tale for our times the lives of these seven renegades tell you to be open minded to be tolerant to engage with the outside world to welcome criticism from people uh, and uh, how through this kind of um, uh, intercultural understanding we can build a better a safer and a more caring world and because each one of these seven people made significant contributions to their adopted country uh, and um, uh, often shone a sharp spotlight while being loving india shone a sharp spotlight on some of the their adopted countries social cultural institutional and environmental defects so uh, in the same way i mean as what immigrants can contribute to uh, to america or what um, people of african descent can contribute to france which the french may not be adequately aware of uh, how ukrainians and russians can learn to respect one another rather than go to war against each other you know so i think these are some of the things that possibly might come out of my book but essentially it's a it's a biographical history it's a story interwoven story of seven extraordinary lives the lessons are secondary Thank you so much Dr Guha for taking so much time from your busy schedule to talk with me today. Um so before we end could you tell us what you are working on right now? Well I have odd different projects uh, Satyanjay. Uh I uh, I'm returning to my early environmental interests and I've begun some fresh work in that field. I'd also like to return to Gandhi and uh, having written a 
2000 page 2 volume 2000 page narrative life of gandhi i would like at some stage to write a more shorter more focused more analytical more argumentative book on gandhi's ideas and uh, their resonance today so i have two or three projects in the works but i'm just sort of slowly working my way through uh, what i want to do next Thank you so much. Um, uh, and I look forward to reading all of your work um, in the future. Um, so this was an interview with Ramachandra Guha about his new book, uh, Rebels Against the Raj, Western Fighters for India's Freedom, uh, which was just published um, earlier this year. Um, so, so thank you so much, Dr. Guha. Thank you, Sasunda. Thank you. Okay.